I'm TL, and I'll be your host for the next hour. Each week at Mass, we say those words, I believe. But our belief has implications on the way we live our life the rest of the week. We explore those implications together right here on Outside the Walls. Well, today is a, uh, it's a big day. Today is the solemnity of the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And uh, this is an important day in the life of the Church. It's an important day. Again, all the doctrines and the dogmas we have about Mary, we have because of what they say about Christ. Um, <clears throat> Mary doesn't get her dogmas for her own sake, uh, but she she gets these dogmas because of uh, her place in salvation history, her very unique place in salvation history, and what that says, what that implies about her son, Jesus Christ. So, for instance, we, we talk about Mary being the mother of God. And we say that because there was a specific time in history, a specific place, where there were people who wanted to deny the divinity of Jesus. They wanted to say that uh, Jesus was a human person that somehow later uh, acquired some bit of his divinity. And the church stopped very clearly and said, no, wait a second, hold on. Um, the, there's only one person. There's only the divine person. And the divine person had a divine nature and a human nature. That divine person took on our human nature uh, to redeem us, but it's still just the divine person. And so Mary, being the mother of Jesus, did not uh, just become the mother of a, of a human, but she was the mother of the divine, the, the mother of the divine person, Jesus Christ. So what we believe about Mary in, in the, that dogma is directly related to what we believe about who Jesus is. And the same is true with all of the Marian dogmas. <clears throat> so today is the, the feast of the, the solemnity of the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary. This is the belief that Mary was, when she was conceived, preserved from the stain of original sin. This is not saying that Mary was uh, a virgin birth. That's the distinction that belongs to Jesus. Mary had a mother and a father, and she was conceived in the normal way. But in the process of being conceived, she was prevented from uh, having original sin transmitted to her. She was preserved from that for the sake of being able to carry the Messiah. She was preserved for the sake of Jesus, not for her own sake, but for uh, for her place in God's plan. And so I want to look at that today through the eyes of Advent, because I, I see something very significant here as we are in this season where we identify with those who are longing and waiting for God. Uh, and so I think of the, the psalmist who would say, How long, O Lord, will you turn your eyes away from us forever? Uh, who could look around and see that things were not right. <clears throat> he could look around and say, this is not the way that God created the world. This is not the way a perfect God would have created his world. And, and so because of what I know about God, I can, I can turn to him in prayer and say, God, come and restore all things. Come and, and uh, reconcile all things back to yourself and all people back to yourself. Uh, and so we join in that cry with those in the Old Testament. We also can identify with uh, with those like 
Simeon and Anna, who were waiting in the temple for the day that the Messiah would come and longing to see this promise, right? They weren't even waiting for things to be made better. They were just waiting for the fulfilled promise that God would do it. And we also are waiting through this time of Advent along with Mary, Mary, who is uh, expectant, who has heard the word of the angel, who has given her fiat, Lord, let it be done to me according to your word, and now is awaiting the birth of Jesus, the coming of Jesus. And so here we are, joined with them in this waiting, in this expectancy, and in the midst of this, God is working. In the midst of this, God is already making his plan happen. You know, I I feel like sometimes we think that here in Advent, we have to make it happen. We have to work hard to prepare ourselves for, you know, we, we hear that prayer, prepare ye the way of the Lord. And we, we get this idea of what that looks like and what we have to do to make it happen. And the truth of the matter is that God is already working. From the very first moment of the fall, even in the middle of him laying out the consequences of what happened from the fall with Adam and Eve, he gives the promise of restoration. He gives the promise of Christ's coming. Now, there are two temptations for us. The one is to say, hey, God's got this and I don't have to participate. Well, yes, God was going ahead and he was preparing all things for redemption, but Mary still had to to participate with that. She had to give her free consent to uh, to God's plan. And we have to do the same thing. We have to give our free consent to the plan of God in our life. We have to make straight the way of God within ourselves, not for his sake, but for our sake. The other temptation is to be not overly lax, but overly stringent. And we can fall into the, the way that the Pharisees went about things, who uh, I've heard that their belief was that if if they could have a perfectly observed Sabbath, then Christ would come. And that was one of the reasons that they were so stringent. And the, one of the reasons that they defined out what the Ten Commandments meant in all of its various iterations and what it meant, you know, what was work? Well, if you walked this far, it was work. But if you only walked that far, it wasn't work. And if you, if you had to do this in your field, it was work. But if you had to do this at your house, it wasn't work. And they did this because they were in some way thinking that God's redemption was dependent on them. And we can fall into that same trap of thinking that we have, uh, in, in our strive for holiness, we have to do it of our own volition and not through the grace and the working of God. So our task this Advent is to listen and to look and to wait for Christ's movement and then to participate with that as we pursue holiness as we await and long for the ultimate redemption. Yes, we are redeemed, but we still long for the redemption of the cosmos. When we come back, we're going to be talking with Joe Hashmeyer about the, the solemnity today of the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary. It's a great conversation. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with T.L. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on daily life 
I'm your host, TL, and today is a holy day of opportunity. Uh, it is the Feast of the Immaculate Conception of the Virgin Mary. And so uh, even though today is a Saturday, and most times when we have a solemnity that falls on a Saturday, it gets moved to a different day, uh, in this case, it's also a patronal feast day because Mary is the patron of the Americas. Therefore, we, we don't move it. So we have uh, our day of Holy Day of Obligation today. Uh, you should find a Mass, and it can't be the Vigil Mass because that one is for tomorrow. Different set of readings. It actually can be the Vigil Mass if you then go to Sunday separately. Oh. It, it, it fits the canonical obligation, even though liturgically it's more fitting to go on Saturday morning. Well, color me corrected. And uh, <laughs> who else could do that but Joe Heschmeyer, our guest today, uh, one, one of my favorite guests, probably our most... Uh, most returning guest that we've ever had here on the show. Uh, now we've, we've come th- with you through multiple stages of your life. Uh, now you work for Holy Family School of Faith in the Kansas City area and are newly married. So congratulations to Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Yeah, you've seen me through many uh, stages and vocational attempts and <laughs> what have you. So uh, it's, it's nice to have finally achieved at least a little clarity on that front. Yeah. Um, and yeah, actually living in Kansas City, the Immaculate Conception is one of the co-patronesses of the diocese as well as of the country. Wow. So stay here. So question for you, uh, which side are you on? Are you on KCK or KC Mo? A uh, very good question. I live on the Kansas side. I do a little bit of work. I'm actually giving a talk tonight on the Missouri side. Uh, it's a very confusing setup because it's, it's an artificial divide mm-hmm. uh, between states and, and therefore between the diocese. Yeah. All right, so we, we're talking today. Today is the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. We're talking about the Immaculate Conception, but we're also in the middle of the season of Advent. Uh, Advent is that time where we uh, await with the whole church, await the coming of Christ. We also await the coming of Christ with all of those who lived before the time of Christ. So we are participating with them in a sense, uh, participating in their longing for Christ's advent, for his arrival. As they were waiting for the Messiah the first time, we are waiting for his return. So we have this shared sense of longing. Uh, they longed for the redemption and the reconciliation between their, themselves and God the Father. We long and wait for the reconciliation and the redemption of the cosmos, uh, waiting for Christ's rule and reign. And so the, the Immaculate Conception is is not separate and, and distinct from this waiting because in, in a very real sense, the Immaculate Conception is the mechanism uh, that starts the whole ball rolling for his first coming. Uh, and so, Joe, talk to me a little bit about this connection between Advent and Mary. Yeah, I mean, Mary is sort of the figure of Advent. And this it's kind of funny because it's like the one time of year, Protestants will sometimes have Mary statues up in their churches. You know, the little nativity scene will be a little tiny Mary there because even they recognize you can't have the preparation for Christmas. You can't have the journey to Bethlehem and cut out the mother of God. Like it doesn't work because then you're left with uh, a pretty central figure missing. Well, you, you know, we, even in the Protestant churches at this time of the year, you'll have hymns to Mary, like Mary, did you know? 
<laughs> or, or, we could have a whole conversation on that particular hymn. We could. Think of viewers and listeners. I think we probably should. And and and, and the answer is yes, she did. Um, but the, the, you've got this idea that we, in some sense, are waiting with Mary for Christ's birth and for Christ's uh, coming, his his advent. Yeah, exactly. Because this whole preparation, this interior longing and preparing a place for Jesus, uh, Mary gets to do that in a special way because Christ is literally within her, physically as well as spiritually. And she prepares a place for him um, so he can come forth into the world. And so it's this incredible uh, image of, of what Advent is all about, that it's this let your life be disrupted and upset by the entry of Christ into it, and then prepare a place for him. Mm-hmm. Now let's talk about, um, not only does Mary prepare a place for him, but the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception says that, that God the Father also creates a place for Christ in the world. Um, because here you have the God of the universe that that can't look upon sin, that, that all of these doctrinal ideas and thoughts that we have about that God, that he is all pure and all holy. And I find it just really interesting that we kind of have this idea backwards. We think that, oh, well, God should be born uh, exalted and not born in, in squalor and not laid in a manger. And he didn't have any problem with that. God's like, yeah, put me in the lowest place but uh, he had a very strong opinion, uh, or at least it, it seems fitting that he, based on this doctrine, he had a very strong opinion about where he was laid in terms of uh, sin. And so we have Mary born uh, conceived without the stain of original sin, not for her own sake, but for the sake of preparing a fitting place for Christ. Yeah. So I don't know if you've ever paid attention to this, but two of the four evangelists, when they're talking about the burial of Christ, mm-hmm. note the tomb in which no one has ever been laid. Yeah. And this is something that matters. It's like, why do two of the four people take pains to say, no one has ever been in this tomb before? Well, because it's this whole Jewish idea of what holiness is. Uh, the Greek word for holiness, hagios, uh, it means something set apart for God. And that's that's exactly the concept, that there are some things that belong to God and there are some things that belong to man. And so, you know, you wouldn't use the Eucharistic chalice as a drinking cup, and not if, because it's wrong to drink anything, but because it, it's literally a profanation. You're taking a sacred thing and using it for ordinary use. And in fact, the, the time that we have something similar to that uh, in the Old Testament, uh, during the time of the Babylonian exile, where uh, you had one of the Babylonian kings take the the sacred vessels out of the temple and use it for a drinking party. That's where we get the the, the whole concept writing of the writing on the wall. <laughs> and that writing on the wall says you've been weighed and found lacking, and someone else is coming to take your kingdom. You're going to die tonight. So I mean, there's it's very serious. Yeah, you literally have the end of a regime over the fact that they profane the sacred things of God. Mm-hmm. So it's it's impossible to stress too much how important that idea was. Uh, in 2 Samuel in the Old Testament, 
you may remember that David is bringing the Ark into the hill country of Judah. And he's not supposed to be moving it at all. He didn't have permission to do so. And they're going through the hills and it starts to slip. And a guy named Uzzah, poor soul, reaches out and touches it. You're not allowed to touch the Ark. And he does it for a good reason. He wants, he wants to protect it and stable it and make, keep it from falling. Right. He shouldn't have been in that situation. He's trying to do the, the right thing in a situation he should never have been in in the first place. And he's struck dead on the spot. So this is how holy, holy things are. This is how you don't uh, combine the sacred and the profane. So this idea is critical to understanding the presence of God incoming into the world. Uh, it's why it would be totally unfitting for there to be sin in the body of Christ, the, the literal, physical body of Christ. For him to have sin on his soul would be obviously completely incompatible with his divinity. Well, so too, for him to dwell and share bodily uh, with his mother for nine months, with someone who is, you know, say in that state of moral sin, would be completely inappropriate, completely incomprehensible for the dignity of God. And we also have this idea of new creation. So um, Mary is often called the new Eve because Mary, Eve by her choice, uh, was presented a choice and she chose sin. Mary was presented the opportunity to do the will of God and she gave her her fiat, her yes. And so we through that comes redemption. Through one comes death, through the other comes redemption. And we have this, this um, almost this typology played out for us in compare and contrast. Yeah, I think that it's exactly typology. So I think just a, a quick kind of background for people who are listening. We don't approach scripture in the way that the New Testament authors and that the early Christians approach scripture. We approach scripture like a book of laws. We just want to say, okay, what does it say here? What do I have to do? Mm-hmm. They had a much richer understanding. And so to point like a very specific concrete instance of this, the first half of 1 Corinthians 10, when Paul is describing the Exodus and how they're baptized into the Red Sea and how they eat and drink supernatural food and drink, he's making these sacramental uh, typology kind of arguments and saying these things were written for our instruction. Now, he's not saying it literally has this line that says they're baptized in the sea. He's understanding why did these things happen and what do they prefigure in the Christian life? Mm-hmm. And so that reading of scripture is something that so few of us know how to do, but the earliest Christians, they read this and they said, okay, here's Eve. Here's this woman who is sinless. Here's this woman who was tempted by a fallen angel and then disobeyed God. Well, here's Mary. Here's this sinless woman. She's greeted by an angel. She says yes and obeys God. And so Irenaeus says, the knot of Eve's disobedience is untied by Mary's obedience. And I, I have to stress, this is not like some medieval Mariology, whatever. No, this is the first 200 years of Christianity. This is before the word Trinity is used to describe the Godhead. I mean, this is incredibly ancient Christians. Like, this is how the earliest hearers of the gospel understood the gospel. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I, I also think that it's fitting here uh, that when God first created the world, he, you know, I, I've heard some people say, oh, well, if you, if you say that Mary was born without original sin or conceived without original sin, then you're making her some way perfect or some way divine. And I would say that, well, when God first created the world, he created humanity as it was meant to be. Uh, and that was without sin. 
And so Mary is, in, in this case, being created as humans are meant to be, uh, so as to be able to carry and, and to, to bear Christ into the world. Yeah, I think when you hear that objection, you have to just stop in your tracks and say, wait a second. Mm-hmm. Do you think the only thing keeping you from being made like God in heaven? <laughs> like, if you just didn't have those few sins, if you didn't have original sin, then you would be godlike? Like, do you really think the difference between us and God is just that we've sinned and he hasn't? Mm-hmm. That is a, it's a terribly limited view of God. It totally discounts the fact that he's the infinite, all good God. Like Adam and Eve were not equal to God prior to the fall. And and frankly, sin is not a natural condition for us. We were made to be in communion with God and without sin. Right. So when they talk about Jesus as the last Adam in 1 Corinthians 15, when the earliest Christians talk about Mary as the new Eve, they're recognizing this, uh, this kind of recapitulation, this return to the original dignity that Adam and Eve had that we lost with sin. Yeah. We're talking today with Joe Heschmeyer about the feast of the, the solemnity of the Immaculate Conception. Go to Mass today, find a place, make it happen. We're going to continue this conversation right after this. Join us over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. Uh, take a picture of, uh, of your church today. Show us where you went to Mass. We'll talk to you here again right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on daily life. I'm your host, TL, and we're talking today with Joe Heschmeyer. He works at the Holy Family School of Faith in Kansas City, Kansas. Great stuff there. Uh, please check them out. You can find them online at schooloffaith.com. Schooloffaith.com. They've got some fabulous stuff on prayer. I had the privilege of, of seeing uh, Mike Schierschlicht come and talk to our, our diocesan um, catechetical conference about contemplative prayer. And it was one of the most fascinating things I've ever seen. Uh, I, I've had a respect for him for a long time. And then they went and hired Joe Heschmeyer, so they got to be okay. Uh, we're talking today about the solemnity of the Immaculate Conception. Today is a holy day of obligation slash opportunity. Uh, so make sure that you get yourself to Mass, not only today, but tomorrow, one one t- uh, trip to Mass this weekend does not meet your full obligation. you got to go twice. Uh, you've got the Saturday obligation and the Sunday obligation. Make your way to Mass. So, we're, Joe, in the last segment, you, you brought up this idea of Uzzah reaching out and trying to study the ark. Uh, and we talked a little bit about Mary being the new Eve, that Eve made a decision that brought uh, death into the world and that Mary then makes a decision with her fiat that brings Christ into the world. But there's another typology that we see in the Old Testament, and that is of Mary being an ark, where the ark bore the presence of God to the people of Israel. Mary bears the presence of God to the whole world uh, as she carries Christ in her. And there's some some textual clues that we have in Scripture that really compare Mary to the ark uh, before we even get into the theologians uh, of the Middle Ages or even in the early church, right in Scripture, we have some some comparisons buried in. 
Yeah, so this is why I wanted to highlight this different way of reading scripture, where the things in the Old Testament prefigure and are fulfilled in the New Testament. Um, and so when you're reading 2 Samuel, you know, we talked about David bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the hill country of Judah for three months. That's a pretty direct comparison uh, to Mary going into the hill country of Judah for three months. Uh, she is the new Ark. So the old Ark, the presence of God would dwell within it. That's radically more true of the body of Mary. But if you want to compare two texts, the first one is 2 Samuel 6, verses 2 to 14. And without reading through the whole thing, I want to point out just seven features. It says David arose and went to move the ark. It's a particular Old Testament kind of phrasing. We only find it one time in the New Testament. You'll see where. Two, they're in Judah. Uh, three, they're in the hill country, which is why the, the ark starts to fall off of the cart. Four, David, when he's vexed by the death of Uzzah, says, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Five, um, Obed-Edom, where they end up staying with his household. His whole house is blessed by the presence of the ark. Six, uh, when they finally get the ark where they want it to go, David is dancing before the ark. And the seventh feature is that the ark stays with Obed-Edom for, for, for three months. Now compare that to the visitation which is Luke 1, 39 to 56. And there Luke says Mary arose and went into the hill country of Judah. Now that's already three common features uh, in 2 Samuel 6, including that kind of strange Old Testament phraseology, arose and went. Um, Elizabeth's question mirrors David, but it's a holier question than David's. He was vexed, but Elizabeth asks in joy, and why is this granted me? that the mother of my Lord should come to me. But notice that for that to be a parallel, the ark of the Lord, the parallel is the mother of my Lord. Mm -hmm. And Elizabeth is blessed by the presence of Mary. John the Baptist dances in the womb upon hearing Mary's greeting. And Mary stays there for three months. Like these things aren't just coincidental. These aren't just two unrelated events. Well, and, and Luke was aware of this. He didn't accidentally write this. He sees the the correlation between these two. And as the gospel writer, he puts that in as a clue to the rest of us. Hey, by the way, this is important. Pay attention. Yeah. And in the broader context of Luke 1, when Gabriel's explaining to Mary uh, how this child to be born to her will fulfill the promises to David and Solomon, well, this is all pointing us back to Second Samuel, because that's where we see these promises brought up. And so the next chapter, we just talked about Second Samuel 6, in the next chapter, there's this promise of building a temple. And the temple is partly fulfilled, that prophecy is, with Solomon, David's son. But the full fulfillment of the prophecy doesn't happen until Jesus, who is the new and perfect temple. Let's take another look at this because uh, as I think this gives us some, some clue into why Mary is uh, considered immaculate, why she's dogmatically defined as having been conceived immaculately or, or rather to be born conceived without the stain of original sin. This is not a virgin birth. She didn't, she, her, her, she was conceived in the normal way, but she was preserved by the work of Christ in preparation for the work of Christ. She was saved just as much 
but she was saved in advance for the purpose of Christ. Now let's take a look at how the ark was built because there's very specific statements and very specific um, ways laid out that God wanted the ark to be built. Uh, He wanted it built of acacia wood. Uh, This is a wood that was incorruptible. It didn't rot. Uh, He wanted it then covered in gold, and gold has this um, this connotation of royalty and of, of of kingliness, and so here we have something perfect and holy and incorruptible being made to carry the presence of God, and and Mary is being compared to that, and so it's fitting that Mary would also be incorruptible, and and. Uh, able to carry the divine, able to have this royal um, accoutrement, as it were. Yeah, exactly. So when we talk about all of these glories given to Mary, they're not just given to her for her own sake, just like the ark isn't built just for its own sake. Mm -hmm. The ark is incredible. The ark is astounding, like jaw-dropping, wondrous, but it's because of its connection uh, to God. Now, there's a message there, I think, for all of us, and this is something that often gets overlooked. Like all of us, no matter how insignificant, however mundane our lives may seem, if we live a life radically for God, it's made glorious and wondrous. But we see this in a handful of really uh, perfect cases, especially the life of Mary as the perfect disciple. Mm -hmm. Now, all of this to me, as I look at this, this doctrine, this dogma, it points out to me that you know, we have this call in the Old Testament, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. But at the same time, God is going before, and God is preparing his own way. And so the the place in which we go and prepare the way of the Lord, we are participating in some small way with the work he's already doing. Uh, we see this all the way back at the fall in the book of Genesis, where um, at when the curse is being handed down, he gives the first picture of redemption, where he says uh, to the, the snake, your seed and her seed shall be at enmity with one another. Uh, you will strike at his heel and he will crush your head, right? We have this picture that this insurmountable, uh, overwhelming thing that's happening right now, being thrown out of the garden, being separated from God, this thing that we can't defeat will be defeated by God. And so from that moment until this moment, uh, God was already preparing the way. And so this final step of of making an ark for his presence uh, by preserving Mary from the stain of original sin, returning her back to the fullest human nature— uh, like we saw with Adam and Eve. Uh, this is that final step in preparation. God is not idly waiting for us to do all the work so that he can finally make his way in. Yeah, and we see that Mary's not just some last-minute afterthought in mm-hmm. this plan. Genesis 3, uh, verse 15, the part you were just talking about, is the first prophecy of the redemption. It's at the moment of the fall, as you said. And so it's that he says to the devil, you'll be at enmity or strife uh, with the woman and your seed and her seed. This is significant because the seed is normally measured through the man. Right. Uh, even the Hebrew word, it refers to the male contribution to the process. So to measure it through the woman is in hindsight, we now recognize a prophecy of the virgin birth. 
There's a reason there's not a man who's being uh, biologically listed as a father. And so there's only one other time in the entire Old Testament where this is measured through the woman. And that's when it's distinguishing between two different mothers with the same husband. Hmm. Uh, and so this virgin birth prophecy means you can't cut the virgin out of the equation. That Mary from Genesis 3 is being prophesied. The woman appears to be Eve, but it's actually Mary. And the church fathers got that. And we often don't. Um, there's another bit right after that in Genesis 3 still that points to this further. This is, I say it's like a nice cocktail party trivia, but I don't get invited to cocktail parties. <laughs> but between the imposition of the curse mm -hmm. and the expulsion from the garden, there's a little thing that happens. Adam changes his wife's name. Mm -hmm. So in the Garden of Eden, they're not known as Adam and Eve. They're known as Adam and woman. Go read Genesis 2, 24. The first name of the woman is woman. He changes her name to Eve, meaning mother of the living. In Genesis 3, right after they've been cursed, before they're expelled. It's weird timing for a lot of reasons. Number one, because they're in the middle of getting punished. Number two, because he just named her mother and they have no kids and they won't until Genesis 4. Mm -hmm. uh, and so at the time, you just think like, what? why did he choose this particular moment to signify this shift? But if you jump forward to John 19, Jesus is on the cross. He's the last Adam. He's undoing the curse of Adam. He's the Adam of a new creation, the life of the spirit. And he looks at that moment, at the moment that he is fulfilling the promise in Genesis 3, and he says, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. And he's been calling her woman throughout the gospel of John, and now he calls her mother. So it's that exact same woman to mother shift at this perfect Adam and Eve moment uh, at the cross. Yeah, you don't get to cocktail parties much, do you? <laughs> <laughs> no, but that, you know, that, that is such a, a beautiful picture. And, and I think that it shows that we read scripture far too, uh, too quickly in mm -hmm. just a cursory manner that there's, there's so much that's built in here, uh, that, that just waits for us to chew on and to meditate on and, and not just on a specific verse, but on the whole of scripture. Uh, and I love that the church lays it out for us in, in the mass readings, they find these connections for us and, and layer them. So if, even if, uh, you don't feel like a scholar. If you would just read the mass readings each day, you're going to start to pick up on a lot of these connections. Yeah, it's absolutely true. I mean, to understand why Mary is immaculately conceived, you need to get why Eve is without original sin before the fall. You need to get why the Ark of the Covenant is made in this incorruptible way. And you need to get why the temple is surrounded by this temple gate that Ezekiel 44 tells us is, is closed and open to no one else because the Lord himself passed through it. This notion of things that are holy and set aside to God. If you're in a culture that treats everything trivially, if you're in a culture with no sense of authentic holiness, where maybe you, you go to church in a strip mall that, that doubles as a conference center, there's no sense of a thing being truly permanently set aside to God. You're not going to get why Mary, in body and in soul especially, is given wholly to God in this life. Give your day wholly to God. Go to Mass. And then uh, go to Mass again tomorrow, because today is a holy day of obligation, the solemnity of the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary. We'll be right back right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our faith on our daily lives. I'm your host, T.L. Today we've been talking with uh, Joe Heschmeyer. He works with Holy Family School of Faith out in Kansas City, Kansas, uh, and I believe is the guest who has the most appearances on this show. We love having him on. It's always a pleasure. He blogs over at shamelesspopery.com, P-O-P-E-R-Y. In the blogs, the uh, articles he has there are always worth your time. So go take a look at those. If you missed any part of the show or you want to go back and listen again or share it with your friends, have no fear. All of our shows are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. You can find today's show just at the end of today's broadcast and share that as far and wide as, as you desire. While you're there, go also and take a look at the uh, the extra segments that we give to those who support the show through Patreon. I've got a few over there that are just available for anyone to look at to give you kind of a sense of what it is. And then for all of those who support the show and help keep us on the air for as little as $5 a month, uh, as a thank you to them, we record extra segments with our guests uh, between 8 to uh, 15, 16 minutes. Uh, so it's really a, a full extra segment with our guests kind of breaking out a little bit more deeply the questions of the day. And so we've got that with Joe today. Go take a look at that. Uh, Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Patreon link, join the number of those who help keep us on the air and get all of those extra segments uh, available for your listening pleasure. Let's go ahead and turn our attention now to our readings from Scripture and from church history. Today being a Marian feast, of course we're going to have a Marian reading. This comes from uh, from the Gospel of Luke. The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a town of Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming to her, he said, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at what was said, and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of David his father, and he will rule over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I have no relations with a man? The angel said to her in reply, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible for God. Mary said, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. That reading comes from the Gospel of Luke and the first chapter. Today's reading from church history comes from the papal bull by Pope Pius IX, Ineffabilis Deus, which is the the papal bull by which the the dogma of the Immaculate Conception was, uh, was promulgated. God ineffable, whose ways are mercy and truth, whose will is omnipotence itself, and whose wisdom reaches from end to end mightily and orders all things sweetly, having foreseen from all eternity the lamentable wretchedness of the entire human race which would result from the sin of Adam, 
decreed by a plan hidden from the centuries to complete the first work of his goodness by a mystery yet more wondrously sublime through the incarnation of the Word. This he decreed in order that man, who contrary to the plan of divine mercy, had been led into sin by the cunning malice of Satan, should not perish. And in order that what had been lost in the first Adam would gloriously be restored in the second Adam. From the very beginning and before time began, the Eternal Father chose and prepared for His only begotten Son a mother, in whom the Son of God would become incarnate, and from whom, in the blessed fullness of time, he would be born into this world. Above all creatures did God so love her that truly in her was the Father well pleased with singular delight. Therefore, far above all the angels and all the saints, so wondrously did God endow her with the abundance of all heavenly gifts, poured from the treasury of his divinity, that his that this mother, ever absolutely free of all stain of sin, all fair and perfect, would possess that fullness of holy innocence and sanctity than which under God one cannot even imagine anything greater, and which outside of God no man can succeed in comprehending fully. And indeed it was wholly fitting that so wonderful a mother should be ever resplendent with the glory of most sublime holiness and so completely free from all taint of original sin that she would triumph utterly over the ancient serpent. To her did the Father will to give his only begotten Son, the Son whom equal to the Father and begotten by him, the Father loves from his heart, and to give this Son in such a way that he would be the one and the same common Son of God the Father and of the Blessed Virgin Mary." It was she whom the Son himself chose to make his mother, and it was from her that the Holy Spirit willed and brought it about that he should be conceived and born from whom he himself proceeds. It is the clear and unanimous opinion of the fathers that the most glorious virgin, for whom he who is mighty has done great things, she was resplendent with such an abundance of heavenly gifts, with such a fullness of grace, and with such innocence, that she is an unspeakable miracle of God. Indeed, the crown of all miracles, and truly the mother of God, she approaches as near to God himself as is possible for a created being, and that she is above all men and angels in glory. Hence, to demonstrate the original innocence and sanctity of the mother of God, not only did they frequently compare her to Eve, while yet a virgin, while yet innocence, and while yet incorrupt, and while not yet deceived by the deadly snares of the most treacherous serpent. But they have also exalted her above Eve with a wonderful variety of expressions. Eve listened to the serpent with lamentable consequences. She fell from original innocence and became his slave. The most blessed virgin, on the contrary, ever increased her original gift, and not only never lent an ear to the serpent, but by divinely given power, she utterly destroyed the force and dominion of the evil one. To these praises, the church fathers have added very noble words. Speaking of the conception of the Virgin, they testified that nature yielded to grace, and unable to go on, stood trembling. The Virgin Mother of God would not be conceived by Anna before grace would bear its fruits. And it was proper 
that she be conceived as the firstborn by whom the firstborn of every creature would be conceived. They testified, too, that the flesh of the virgin, although derived from Adam, did not contract the stains of Adam, and that on this account the most blessed virgin was the tabernacle created by God himself and formed by the Holy Spirit, truly a work in royal purple, adorned and woven with gold. They affirmed that the same virgin is and is deservedly the first and especial work of God escaping the fiery arrows of the evil one, that she is beautiful by nature and entirely free from all stain, that at her immaculate conception she came into the world all radiant like the dawn, for it was certainly not fitting that this vessel of election should be wounded by the common injuries, since she, differing so much from the others, had only a nature in common with them, not sin. In fact, it was quite fitting that as the only begotten has a father in heaven, whom the seraphim extol as thrice holy, so he should have a mother on earth who would never be without the splendor of holiness. That reading comes from the papal bull by uh, Pope Pius IX called Ineffabilis Deus. This is one of those dogmas of the church that when I was not Catholic, I had a really hard time with. And I, I didn't fully understand it. I, you know, I would ask the question uh, about this and some of the other Marian doctrines. Why would God have to do that? Why would God have to make her uh, completely free from the stain of original sin? Why would God have to uh, have her be perpetually virgin? Why would it have to be this way? And the church uh, would answer, no one says it has to be this way, but it's fitting that God would do this. And and the fact that it has been done, right now we're upholding the truth uh, that has been handed down to us, that has been carried on through the ages by the church. But isn't it just beautiful? Uh, isn't it just sublime how God set this up and how God showed us that he is longing to make us all holy? What better way to do that than to prove that it can be done, right? We look at it and say, oh, well, look at all my failings. Uh, I can I can trust that God will save me, but it's it's too hard for me to really be holy. And so Mary shows us that our human nature is not incompatible with holiness. In fact, it is our highest creation. It's what we were created to be, to be fully in relationship with God and to live out that life of grace, to live out that life of holiness. And so as we go about our week longing for the redemption of God, as we go about our week living out this week of Advent and waiting for redemption to come to us, and as we celebrate and marvel at the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary, let us join together in that prayer, O Mary, conceived without sin, pray for us who have recourse to Thee. That's all the time we have for this week. Today's show is brought to you by Brandy Carey and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Patreon link, and join their numbers. Get access to all of our extra segments while you're at it. Join us over on social media, Facebook.com slash StepOutsideTheWalls. On Twitter, the handle's at OutsideTheWalls. And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.